friends, and welcome to Beauty, the Interviews, a podcast production of The Beautiful Project, a storytelling collective that invites women to challenge body and beauty expectations, creating a world where we belong with substance and with strength. I'm Sarah Stevens, your host for this podcast and the founder of The Beautiful Project. Welcome to episode one of season two, the season of survivors. And there is not a better woman for this first episode than our beauty, Laura. Laura and I sat down across from each other, microphone in between us. We had not actually met for longer than a handshake before that moment. I'd been connected to Laura through a friend of mine, a friend who I had shared this vision for season two, and she said, you've got to know Laura's story. So Laura and I sat down. She approached this interview with warmth and openness and groundedness, and she shared sort of this trifecta of trauma. Laura is a survivor of sexual assault. She's a survivor of unimaginable chronic pain, and she also survived breast cancer, which she tells is almost this afternote. Like, oh, and yeah, by the way, I also survived breast cancer. What happened to Laura from these places of trauma really is the most beautiful healing. And it's healing that she brings to the podcast today with all sorts of willingness and openness to share and to let our collective stories heal us collectively. So let's drop in and hear from our beauty, Laura, all about surviving trauma, finding healing, and rediscovering hope. So thank you for saying yes. Of course. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. So we'll get started with the question I ask everybody, which is tell me what it means to you to be a survivor. So I think um, living as a survivor, so and I know that uh, the story that we're going to focus on today probably is the sexual violence story. However, um, I've survived a lot of different things, as have many people. Yeah. So, um, sexual violence, um, uh, uh, spinal cord injury, can- breast cancer, mm-hmm. divorce, lots of different things. And I think for me, living as a survivor has meant um, that I have learned how to live life with gratitude mm. and peace and joy. Um, an attempt to live life uh, with joy in every moment and being present. Mm -hmm. So that might seem counterintuitive, but Mm. (laughs) that is what it means to me. Yeah. Um, No, it's been a journey, but I think that's, um, it might be counterintuitive to somebody who hasn't lost anything, but Mm -hmm. I think that lots of people who've lost something or suffered Mm -hmm. and survived, right. And taken that as an invitation to do more than just go on with our heart beating, but to be awake and alive. I think I think that most of us know that that's how that works, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I hope so, yeah. Yeah. That's my hope. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So um, I want to invite you to sort of tell your story and share with the audience whatever it is that you're comfortable sharing with sure. them. Sure. So I had a lot of trouble um, figuring out how to tell my story, and so for many years I didn't mm-hmm. because I'm a very type A person, mm-hmm. and I... Um, I'm a numbers person. I work with numbers every day. And um, I thought I had to tell my story chronologically, beginning to end. And the the part of, uh, there's a part that's missing, a big part of my sexual assault story that's missing um, that my brain protected me from. Mm -hmm. And I look at it that way um, now. So since I was missing that piece, I didn't feel I could tell my story because Mm -hmm. I didn't have the whole story. Um, the reality is that I was 15 years old and now I'm 56, so it was a long time ago. Yeah. And um, my parents and I had had an argument. I was an extremely strong-willed young woman, which I think is actually helpful to right. women, especially yeah. in society. Um, That's funny because I actually <laughs> will often say that the things, my daughter's 16, the things in her that I find very difficult right now yes. as her mom, yes. I can also see that these are the exact 
qualities that will make her into this force in the world. So I don't want to strip yes. her of them. No. Right? But no, it's, absolutely not. But man, is it tough but to it's parent. Tough. It's, it's hard to parent that it's kind tough. of child. Yes, it is. I didn't mean to interrupt. So I, no, but I, I do know the strong-willed. I am one myself yeah. as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I was 15, very strong-willed, and uh, my family was going on a vacation, a ski vacation, and I wanted to stay behind and do... Um, I wanted us to go later and mm-hmm. I, so that I could participate in a piano competition. And I, I don't remember the details. They probably had already made the reservations and everything, and yeah. I was expecting everyone to work with my schedule. Yeah. Um, so th- what was agreed upon was that I would stay behind, um, do the piano competition, and then take a bus mm-hmm. to meet them out in Colorado. And when the bus got to Omaha, Nebraska, um, we hit ice storms, and they stopped at the bus station and told us that we would be spending the night there. And um, we didn't have cell phones back then. You know, that was a long time ago. <laughs> and so we actually had, for anyone who's listening to this who doesn't remember, there were telephones on the wall. and Yeah. Telef- yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, so I would be on the phone calling my parents frequently and trying to figure out, you know, what to do, and uh, as a 15-year-old, you just, you have no idea when you're in a situation like that, and so every time I was on the phone, I would turn around, and there was a man um, who was listening to me, and it scared me so much that I did something that, it it took me many years to sort of realize that this was a 15-year-old girl making decisions, right, so I decided to take and leave the bus station and find a hotel room. And that decision was made from a place of being afraid of this man who was listening to me. And he must have followed me. I remember everything about the room, the way the furniture was set up, the color of the walls, the ceiling, lots of different things. I remember something happening with the chain um, on the door. And then the next thing I remember is um, being in the bathroom and being hurt. Mm. And so... I really do believe that your, the brain protects you mm-hmm. in ways. There have been um, counselors along the way who have thought that it was important for me to remember the, mm-hmm. that time that had the escaped me. Assault. Yeah, and, and I've come to a place where I thought, why? Why, why is that important? Mm-hmm. Um, um, I am in a place in my life where I'm very much at peace and very joyful and living with gratitude. And I don't, I don't see a reason to do that if my brain felt the need to protect me from whatever it was that happened. In fact, I feel very grateful that it did protect me. There are many survivors who remember every single minute and that has to be horrible. So I woke up in in the bathroom, and I was hurt, and my brain just went on autopilot. Get to my parents, get to my parents. So I hopped on the bus the next morning, um, and I did not tell my parents for three months. It was winter, so I could cover um, wounds up, and um, I went on the vacation. They just thought I was a bit depressed, which a 15-year-old girl can tend to be. And I didn't ski, um, as I recall. Um, And... About three months later, I felt like things were unraveling. Um, I didn't understand what was going on with me. I went off to school one day, and I believe I had my uh, permit to drive, so I went off to school, and I didn't go to school. I went to a place um, across the river to jump out of a building and kill myself. And um, as I was... It was, it was just an empty building with broken glass. It, as I recall, it was like a, just a big old vacant factory or something. And Do you remember finding it before you got in the car to drive or just driving to it? I drove to it. I just drove. I just drove. And until drove. you found like, a just, place. Again, sort of autopilot until yeah. I found a place. Okay. And um, I, actually wrote, um, I actually wrote a little, I don't think you'd call it a poem, a little piece about this experience. Um, I went to this place, no, not purposeful, not purposely picked this place, but it seemed at the time appropriate to me to pick something that was broken and empty. Mm. And um, 
I went up to whatever floor it was I went up to and was standing in front of the window and there was a man there with a uh, who had a bucket that he was like mopping and cleaning and he walked by the door and he just looked in at me and he just said are you okay and um, that it was so odd I actually call him my first responder um, I was so surprised to hear that someone was there and then the fact that he just asked me are you okay my brain said maybe he really wants to know maybe I'm worth someone wanting to know am I okay and that caused me to get up and go home and tell my parents and then um, move forward with getting some help so um, how did your parents react well um, hmm, you know back in that day Again, this was decades ago, and actually that was one year before Family Resources started mm. their, um, it wasn't called Safe back, Path back then, but their Survivor Advocacy Program. Mm -hmm. um, so people didn't talk about rape back then. Mm -hmm. um, they were very concerned about what that would do to my reputation, right. to, you know, they... They did everything that they could. They tried to get me help. They took me to a counselor a few times, um, and it just was not helpful. I'm. It's why I'm a huge advocate for like family resources advocacy programs and counseling and like go to somebody who understands how yeah. to help you. Yeah. It's so important. And nowadays we talk about rape in in such a different way. Yeah. Um, than we did back then. So. Yeah, it was very yeah. victim blamey. Yeah, it was yeah. just, well, it was, uh, I think indirectly in a lot of ways, like my parents wanted to help me, but they thought the right way to help me was to tell me you need to keep quiet about this, right? right. So they didn't intentionally right. try to make me feel like I had done something wrong, but when you tell the survivor of especially sexual violence to keep quiet about it, People who have not endured that don't understand that the voices in your head are already telling you you're not worth anything, you're not worth love and belonging, mm -hmm. no one will want you. You're already thinking all those things. So right. when somebody says you should probably keep this quiet, that just right. sort of... It, well, it's going to amplify the internal voices. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, and that's a really wise way to understand it too, that they, they, were, they were doing what was the common, mm -hmm. that was just the common understanding at the time. You know, we've grown a lot. Absolutely. Thank God. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned they took you to a counselor to try to help, um, and that was not helpful. It wasn't helpful. He, you know, I don't even, he did a couple of uh, sort of biofeedback type yeah. stuff that, yeah, yeah. I, and I only think I went a couple of times because I don't think it was helpful. So what um, did help? So actually, um, and I, I did end up sort of keeping quiet about it. I uh, graduated high school as a very shy, awkward person mm -hmm. who had maybe one friend when I was a senior in high school and um, couldn't wait to get to college, went away to college, mm -hmm. um, did all the rebellious things, um, really didn't think a lot about what had happened to me. I think the, you know, the keeping silent thing, you can silence it in your brain too, but mm -hmm. then it just, it just, it, it, it led to a bunch of bad decisions on my part. So I was wondering, yeah. how did it come out? Yeah, you? it led to a bunch of bad decisions. Um, I decided that um, I met a man who was religious mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I guess the voices inside of my head had said, because I came from a religious family, mm -hmm. nobody told me this, but I think in my head I had decided that um, I was a bad person. Mm -hmm. I probably wasn't going to heaven. You know, all of these things that you, you can end up telling yourself. I don't know. There's some statistic out there about how how much conversation goes on in our head yeah, versus right. how much goes on in our our average day right yeah, and yeah, yeah. and if you think it's like a ridiculous statistic about mm -hmm. how much goes on in our head and um if you think about that and and you're continuing to tell yourself that what your value is or lack of value so i met this man and i thought 
if if I could be with this man, then he could be my conduit to God. Yeah, like your and, redemption. Right, right. So yeah. um, that's no reason to marry somebody. No. <laughs> not at all. No. It's not a good choice. Um, but not something we know until we've done it, actually. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so... Um, so we got married, and um, I mean, the beautiful thing about that, and again, I think if there's anything I want to really say today, mm-hmm. and when we spoke about having this talk, is that beauty can come out of terror. I mean, mm-hmm. so much beauty can come out of that. I had two amazing young boys um, mm-hmm. being married to that man, and um, they, I, they've, they've grown into amazing young men because... Um, I knew also I did not know how to parent. All I knew about parenting was that I knew how to love my sons, I knew how to be honest, and I knew how to say I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And that's all I knew. That's all I know about friendship, about parenting, about being married, about, you know, anything really in general. I think those three, I think to know how to do those three things, actually, I think anybody who tells you they know more is probably not telling you the whole truth because I think most of us, that's really That's beautiful. About it. That's about it. That's about what we yeah. have available to us. Yeah. And I think parents in particular are afraid of saying that because it might expose the fact that we don't know anything beyond that. But we right. really don't. We don't. I'm the same way. I don't, I don't know anything beyond those things. I, there are lots of things I want for my children. Yeah. Um, and I also realize that that requires their cooperation. Mm-hmm. And so right. that's just going to be what it's going to be. I just want to love them and tell them the truth yeah. and tell them I'm sorry when yeah. they're wrong. That's really good. Yeah. I might steal that. That's okay. <laughs> There's no stealing okay. to it. You, okay. can, you can own that. Like, well, this is plagiarism. That's <laughs> yeah. Right here. Yeah. yeah. That's very good. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt no. that, that piece. So, yeah. Um, so you were married and mm-hmm. it was not super healthy, but you had those, mm-hmm. those boys. Yep. Okay. And then we divorced um, about 14 years later. Okay. Uh, I got remarried again very, very quickly, and um, that wasn't healthy either. So the reality is now, um, in my second marriage, I was with him also for about 14 years, which, I don't know, there's something. Yeah. <laughs> like the 14-year plan, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> It's a nice interval. How many for more you? of those can yeah. I fit in? I don't know. At least no. I've been <laughs> a couple, at least. <laughs> no, no. So no, that's okay. Um, once, I mean, the challenges continued, uh, and they had nothing to do with the rape. Um, I I ended up with a spinal cord injury, and my second husband. We married in 2002, and in 2004, I had a spinal cord injury, had surgery, woke with something called central pain because my spinal cord had been nicked during the surgery and and injured further, Um, and I lived in a severe state of pain for six years. That's tough, you know, on newlyweds. (laughs) Yes. It's tough on people who aren't newlyweds, but... That's really tough. And yeah. in during those years, um, we had a lot of problems. Our, our home flooded and a lot of different things, Raising, trying to raise two boys, get them through high school and college. And, uh, and then once, um, six years into the, the spinal cord injury, my neurologist called me and said that he had found a neurosurgeon at Northwestern who he thought could help me by implanting a spinal cord stimulator. Mm. And so I had that done. It took care of, of 99% of my pain, and I was able to get off my medications and begin to live my life. That said, I mean, instantly, like, after the surgery, I was like, okay. I'm back. I'm good. Let's, you know, let's wow. celebrate. And my poor husband was, um, he's like, you look exactly the same to me as you've looked, you know, I need some time to catch up and chronic, I think living with chronic pain, living with, um, um, emotional issues, all of these things, Mm -hmm. they're invisible to the eye. So like to the people who are living with you, it requires a lot of understanding on their part. And then when things get better for you, they need a little bit of time to catch up. Um, because it wasn't going on inside of them. 
inside of them. It's right. very difficult for them to understand. Tell me what those years of chronic, was it like, was it like living in a fog? Tell me about those years physically, what that was like. Yeah. So when I woke up from that surgery, I woke up with my arms in the air screaming, feeling like my arms were literally in flames and I couldn't, my brain could not understand that I wasn't seeing my arms in flames. So it was very confusing. Um, I couldn't allow the sheets to touch my arms or sleeves even the breeze of the nurse walking past my bed would just send me into this um, this state of pain that I can't... Central pain, if you look it up on painonline.com, um, there are some patients who will try to put into words what it is. It's the most blunt pain that the human body is capable of experiencing. Wow. There's really no discriminative... Um, no way to explain it. Okay. Um, sometimes it feels like your arms are on fire. Sometimes it feels like someone's jabbing an ice pick into them. Sometimes like all of that's happening while you're in a freezer. It's, it's just the most odd and it's constantly changing, which is the part that's the most difficult. Your brain can never get used to mm. the brain's an amazing thing. Like yeah. if you're experiencing a chronic state of something, it will eventually get used to that yeah. and be able to ignore that. Yeah. But with central pain, it can't do that. So those six years, um, they say that patients who are living with central pain, when, when doctors are trying to talk to them, it's like trying to talk to someone who's been in solitary confinement for years. Mm. Um, they have their own world, and it's a world of pain. And it's a world of just sort of observing other people live their lives. Wow. Um, so it's it's a very it's a very odd thing, and it's an it's a difficult thing. To, I mean, I feel like raising my sons during that time saved my life. You know. Sure. You, yeah. Uh, you think about you have three. I thought I have three options. I can kill myself, yeah. which you think about every day. Yeah. Um, I can continue living my experience of life as it is right now, mm -hmm. but that wasn't an option because that would lead to number one. Mm -hmm. Or I can try to figure out what I can focus on outside of what I'm experiencing right now. Mm. And, um, and that's, that was a funny journey. Now that I look back on it, it's funny because if you can imagine your arms are on fire and you're trying to figure out what to focus on, uh, it, it's bizarre to think about yeah, that. Yeah, it is. Sur um, like, it's surreal. I mean, yes. my brain, having not experienced it, can't actually carve out a neural pathway where that makes right, sense. Right, Yeah. It makes no sense, yeah. right? So, like, um, work was wonderful because I could really dig in and do my work. Mm. Weekends were hell. Mm. Um, I decided that I was going to start trying to figure out things that I could care about outside of what was going on in my life. And so I started, when I would get emails for, we need someone to do this, you know, volunteer to do this, be mm -hmm. on this committee, I would go. And I was just yes. like, yeah, it was always a yes. And then I'd go and I'd feel like a fool because I had no idea what we were trying to raise <laughs> funds for, right? Um, those years, again, beauty from ugly yeah. is that I got involved with the community foundation, family resources, the Heart yeah. Association. I learned some beautiful things that people were doing yeah. and, um, and, and learned how wonderful it is to help others. I met a group of women that... Um, I call my tribe. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you have a tribe of yeah. people that um, w when I would go and be with these women and I would cry my way through and I would feel like a complete fool, they would mirror back to me what they saw, which was they used words like courage mm. and they talked about vulnerability as being an amazing leadership quality. Um, lots of different um, I, I, I learned so much from these women and that has continued on and actually helped me in my business journey and my friendships and parenting, all of, mm -hmm. all of the things I do. So, um, and then I had the spinal cord stimulator implanted. Life was great. Um, and then like a year later, I got breast cancer. So it was just boom, boom, boom. And my poor husband, you know, it just, I, I don't know 
that a brand new marriage um, can survive all of that. Yeah, so, I don't know either. That's a yeah, lot. Yeah, so we divorced in um, 2015, and um, and this is the first time that I've spent a significant amount of time by myself, mm-hmm. getting to know myself, um, and it's been really beautiful. Mm. Isn't it? It's been amazing. There's a thing about coming home to ourselves that I think... Um, regardless of sort of your life circumstances, I think it, it might be particular to all humans, but I know I only really talk to women about these things. So mm-hmm. I have that, that angle on mm-hmm. it. Um, but we spend a lot of our lives, I feel like we spend the first half of our lives trying to become something, become something. Yeah. And then we spend the second half trying to unbecome all the things we became <laughs> so that we can get back to the core right. of the thing. It's like, we had to put on all of these layers to be something else. And then there's this discovery of like, oh, yeah. just me. Like, yeah. just me is extraordinary. Right. Yeah. yeah. Tell me, um, you are very, you are, you have a lot of, the way that you talk about the rape and the, and all the things actually, it's obvious to me you've done some internal work. Mm-hmm. Like, you people just don't have language mm-hmm. and access that way without having done some work around mm-hmm. these things. Yeah. So I'm curious um, what worked for you to give you access to process that pain and loss and those things. Because it's obvious you have. Yeah. So every experience has been different. Yeah. And, um, but I do a lot of internal work. I'm, I'm, people are surprised to hear that I consider myself an introvert because I'm with people all day. Mm-hmm. I love people. I could not live life without connection. Yeah. Um, there is n- really nothing that energizes me more than having conversations like this, you know, mm-hmm. good, honest, what I call courageous conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time where I re-energize is when I'm home alone mm-hmm. um, or somewhere alone and I can just take time to think. Um, for all of the experiences, the healing has been a different process and the internal work has been a different process. The rape, the true healing from the rape occurred honestly in 2011. Wow. When, so a lot of years later, um, when I was, uh, chairing a luncheon it's now called rising up and yeah yeah, and family resources put it on it was called honor the women and we had brought trisha miley who was the central park jogger she's writing a book we had brought her here to be our speaker Mm -hmm. and trisha's an amazing human i got to spend some time with her um speaking trisha also has I, I guess what I would call, I'm not, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but the gift of not remembering a lot of what happened to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but her story was so horrific. I mean, she was in a coma, and when she got to the hospital, the doctors could not tell if she was male or female. She was Jeez. so beat up. The only part of her body that didn't have bruises or injuries were the soles of her feet. She was a mess. So her story, plus this happened in Central Park, New York, right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, as she was telling her story at the luncheon, well, and even prior to that, um, I had thought, my fear is that the people in our community are going to be able to push this off and say, well, that's New York. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something that would never happen here. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that I just briefly, I wasn't going to go into details, but needed to say, this happens here, and it happened to me, mm-hmm. and it happens in the Midwest. And so I decided I was going to do that, and then my dear friend, Tracy Schwind, mm-hmm. um, I, again, one of the women in my tribe, I went to her, I didn't know her that well at that point, but I went to her with my pieces of paper, and I said, would you please let me speak this to you and tell me, you know, whether you think this will be helpful. And um, it's how we became such close friends. So I told 400 people, Mm. (laughs) you know, really one of the first times that I ever told anyone about the rape, and that was the beginning of my healing. I realized 
that it isn't until you speak something mm-hmm. that it really becomes real. Mm-hmm. And so why do people not talk about rape? Because once you say it, you can't unsay it. Right. It's real. It's real now. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went from there to, I, I went to a writing workshop for survivors of sexual violence in Chicago and then decided I needed to bring that here because there were people here mm-hmm. that, you know, again, writing, reading, testimonial um, writing about an experience, it makes it real. It's the start to healing mm-hmm. and um, and it helps others. Mm-hmm. There's purpose in it. So so that was the rape. And then, you know, each of my experiences, I, I, I've felt myself grow through these experiences. Um, the the spinal cord injury as horrible as the rape was as horrible as the breast cancer was six years of living in that type of pain was the worst thing I've ever experienced and um, what I did there was I woke up every morning and I thought about my children and I decided that my goal for that day was to put my head back on my pillow at night and that was pretty much it you know for six years yeah it, that was pretty much what I could do. Mm-hmm. So, um, could you sleep with this? So my my husband said that he would wake up and look over at me, and my arms would be up straight up in the air. Um, I would, yeah, I would sleep with my arms straight up in the air. I have no idea how a person does that. Wow! But I also I went to Mayo's, and they figured out that they could. Uh, I could wear these compressive garments on my arms, mm. like a lymphode- mm-hmm. lymphedema sleeve, mm-hmm. but it would also cover my hands, and that would keep the sleeves and breezes from touching me. Um, um, yeah, and then I was on several different forms of medications, like anti-seizure meds that mm-hmm. keep the nerves from firing. Uh, nothing really, nothing would it, really would it put a dent in no it. No dent. You know, really take the edge off, but wow, six years of that. So yeah, so that was awful. It was just about intentionality of I'm going to put my head back on the pillow today. Well, and also I will say again, beauty from terror, like is sort of your thing, my thing, like what I've learned. Um, (laughs) I really believe. So when I was raped, I have that period of time that my brain protected me from. Whatever that means, um, it allowed me to escape those moments. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw a counselor, a pain therapist, and I would go see him every week during those six years. And uh, I would, my goal going in to see him, I didn't feel he completely understood. Mm -hmm. I I don't think he really understood central pain. Um, So I wouldn't always get like, I'd be like, yeah, right, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, in my brain, I'm not really sure I completely he completely understands or even begins to. But I would try to get one thing from him each time that mm-hmm. I could think about, that I could process and work on that week. And I remember during one of our conversations, there was a moment where we talked about the fact that my brain had learned how to leave pain mm-hmm. during the rape. Mm-hmm. And I think during those years that I lived with the central pain, my brain helped me leave that in some ways. The danger with that is that when your brain helps you leave mm. what your body is experiencing, yeah. then you also don't experience joy. Yeah. yeah. So it saved my life, Yeah. but um, those years feel like um, just sort of like a, something that I didn't really experience. Yeah. Um, once I had the spinal cord stimulator implanted, I was able then to understand that if we don't allow ourselves the pain, we don't allow ourselves the joy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's been a pretty neat, neat experience. Have you found, was there some difficulty in the reentry there though? Like in being intentional then about the experience of pain and joy? Because I would think, Maybe we're just craving, maybe maybe having all of that time off from mm-hmm. being able to live, maybe you just dove headlong into it too. I don't know if it was like something that kept you from experiencing pain and joy or what, what was the experience yeah, there? So, so I, I do know the, the day I really knew that my brain was sort of leaving this experience yeah. aside was when my neurologist um, who had long 
before that, I will say the worst day in my life was when he came up from behind his desk and he said, you do know this is never going to end. Oh my and God. I was in my 40s and I had two, two, two young boys and he said, I need to release you to your medical doctor to manage your meds. And, and I just, I, I've never felt so alone in my life. And it was probably about four years later that he called me. I thought he had completely forgotten me. And about four years later, he called me and said, I think I found someone who can help you. Well, at that point, I had learned, you know, I'd gotten involved in these other things. I think I had learned, for in, my brain had learned how to escape enough to survive. I was surviving. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I had to go meet with Dr. Levy at Northwestern. He was a rock star, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, but he wanted me to talk about my pain. Mm-hmm. And that was, re- talk about reentry. Like when I had to come back to that pain and bring, mm. you know, and actually speak about it um, and try to appear somewhat sane, you know, that's a very odd um, experience. That was a rough day. It was yeah, because really the things day. that we say out loud are real. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I had to come back to that. Yeah. And I just remember crying my way through that and, you know, apologizing to the poor young medical student who was in the room and saying, I don't know why this is so hard. And um, I mean, now I understand it, but you don't understand it when you're going through it. And then when he said to me, "Okay, this is what we're going to do. You're going to see so and so and so and so and then we'll schedule. And I looked at him and I was like, wait, you're going to you're going to let me do the surgery and he just very calmly said, well, it would be really cruel for me to tell you about the fact that I could help you and then say I'm not going to do the surgery. But um, it was hard for me to understand that, right? So then, yeah, so then when I woke up and I, they wanted me to wean off my meds, I said, there'll be no weaning. I'm, I'm never done. Done. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> and then, you know, let's have champagne, let's celebrate, let's go on a date and all of this. And um, again, now understanding that I looked exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And this is so difficult for someone who has not been in that experience to understand. It was tough. So re-entry for me Mm -hmm. was I wanted to celebrate right away. Yeah. Um, I wanted to grab every single moment and then... I was required to have empathy, right? So, oh yeah, um, and to uh, to try to figure out what those years had been like for my husband, my children, mm-hmm. my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, what did they tell you it was like? So, hell, yeah, <laughs> it was hell. You know, yeah, yeah. It was. Um, I think kids don't always. I think you know when it's your teenage kids or whatever I don't know that I think they always think mom and dad have it together so I'm not really sure yeah it's just like you're gonna be fine you know because well they need you to be so that's what that's about I think yeah yeah Yeah. they're like no you're gonna be fine because you have to be right so it was different it was different for my husband it was it was hell for him you know he got the he got the crazy edges of it right like I could go to work function Mm -hmm. do really really well and then come home and fall apart. Yeah. And um, so he got those crazy, really rough edges. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was really tough on him. So my friends, on the other hand, like my tribe of women, mm-hmm. they were the ones that, um, you know, they didn't have to live with me. So, But yeah. at the same time, they were the ones that listened and mirrored back what they saw in me. And... Um, taught me how story can lead to solution. Yeah. Um, taught me the value of allowing myself to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. All of these things I've taken into my work now. Yeah. And um, and leadership skills and relationships and my team at work. You know, vulnerability, compassion. Um, these are huge values that we hold on my team at work. What a gift yeah. to mm-hmm. them. That's not that's not the case everywhere. Yeah. You, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Brene. Did, yeah. Is she? Yeah, yeah, I sure am. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. As you're talking, I'm like, mm-hmm. that's dare to lead stuff. Right it there. absolutely yeah. is. Yes. Um, so, do you want to talk at all about the breast cancer? You haven't really sure. talked about it. So you were so you get the spinal cord stimulator implanted. Mm-hmm. There's champagne. The, yeah. <laughs> 
And then two years later, you get this diagnosis. Yeah, she puts on a pretty dress. She goes out, has champagne. She says, I feel pretty. And then she finds a lump in her breast and um, says... And, and I went immediately to the doctor, and then it, that all happened in a flurry. I went immediately to have a mammogram and then all of the tests that followed that. And um, I went back to Northwestern for the mastectomy because they were doing all of my medical care. And whenever I have surgery with the spinal cord stimulator, I have to have St. Jude people there to manage all of that. Um, the breast cancer was... Um, I had mastectomy. I did not need to go through chemo. Mm. And I think for many... People who go through cancer, probably chemo is the worst part, yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, so I don't have that experience. The weird thing about cancer, or at least breast cancer, or at least the form I had, is that you don't feel sick. Mm. You don't feel like there's anything wrong with you. So, um, so for me, um, like the physical pain, just like when I had um, the surgery with my spinal cord, the physical pain of the incision mm-hmm. and the muscles and things like that, that was easy for me to deal with. So the physical pain of the mastectomy and dealing with all of that, that type of pain was not difficult for me to deal mm-hmm. with. Um, um, uh, central pain, um, people who have spinal cord injuries, it's a t- di- completely different type of pain. So... Um, the mastectomy, the cancer. Uh, I I remember the day the doctor called me and told me that it came back as a um, invasive ductal carcinoma. Mm-hmm. I was in my car. I got out of my car. I went into the basement of my house and I started laughing. And I was like, "Really, God? Really? <laughs> That's fair." <laughs> just if started laughing gets to do that it's you and the reason I went to my basement was because we were in the midst of we had had to rip the whole thing apart it was a finished basement because we had just gone through a big flooding and so the house was ripped apart the yeah and I literally I was I just laughed out loud and I was like we're gonna do this now really That's but awesome. for me personally the cancer um, was not my biggest struggle in life. Yeah. I think I was very lucky in that I didn't need. Well, you were definitely prepared for. You, if some, I mean, at that point, the yeah. like you said, the pain from from the mastectomy, by way of comparison, yeah. is like not even. Yeah. They don't well, even, and you know it's going to be over. Right. 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 I think our brain, you know, when someone tells you, you know, this is never going to end, <laughs> that's a different feeling than when you know you've had this surgery and that pain will eventually go away so I can't get my head around that around the day he Mm. told you that I yeah they also don't tell you I mean I you know I understand now they don't they never told me what I had with the spinal cord injury because then what are you going to do you're going to go google it right and you're going to see that many central pain patients commit suicide and you're going to find um, post-mortem descriptions of blah, blah, blah. And so they don't tell you what it is. Mm. Um, but I remember one day, you know, he handed me my little sheet to check out at the doctor. And, and I saw it in there. And then I, of course, did all the things. Yeah. And I felt a little less alone because I found, like, a chat room of yeah. people who were going through the same thing. And I'm like, oh, I'm not crazy. You know, oh, yeah, I bet. Yeah, so. yeah, again, sort of back to that, similar to your parents in the way that they handled, you know, with the, um, just don't talk about it. Right, right, like, right. Right, yeah, so there was this similar mm-hmm. sort of thread of maybe if we don't acknowledge it. Right, You right. know, but exactly. then there was some healing for you in the idea that you weren't crazy and you weren't right. alone. Let's talk about it, exactly. So. Yeah, the truth and the light is always better. It's mm-hmm. always better. Yeah. It's I hard, know. but it's, um, hard isn't bad, right? No. It's just hard. It is hard, but it, um, um, I mean, I'm so glad that we're getting to a point. I, I really believe like when, if we're talking about sexual assault or violence in general, um, if, as long as we silence people, mm-hmm. then the viol the violators, you know, the perpetrators, they win. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand 
telling people, you know, I understand blurring the faces. I understand not, you know, using Jane Doe or whatever initially. Mm -hmm. I understand that people absolutely deserve their anonymity in these situations and they need time to work through things. But what's really happening then is, is that we're unintentionally silencing and making these people invisible. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a tipping point somewhere. Yeah. I love that idea of a tipping point where we talk about it enough, where people like myself and, and others who have endured sexual violence, which might be, um, you know, it's very intimate yeah. crime. Yeah. Um, we talk about it enough. We say, this wasn't my fault. We hold our heads high. Yeah. We succeed in life. Yeah. We do magnificent things. Mm -hmm. And we feel wonderful about ourselves and feel grateful and joy in our lives. And, um, and then what? And then what happens to the perpetrators, right? If enough of us talk about it, yep. then eventually, without shame, then eventually I feel like there's a tipping point where uh, suddenly they won't be the ones we talk about anymore. That's right. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah, I um, this is the I've had a lot of interviews today, and one of the things that's striking me, um, there's a line that came to me in the beginning of creating this project. It said, "Our collective stories heal us collectively," mm. and I think that's the theme for this season. I love that. Yeah, because they I'm listening yeah. to you to all of you who are sharing these things these things with me courageously, and you've all said something similar like. Um, that my that my truth is not just here to heal me, but it it, it heals mm -hmm. all of us, you know. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, um, just to wrap up, is there anything uh, you have an opportunity here to speak to an audience that I'm sure is full of women who are surviving something? Yeah. I, I don't know what their thing is, but we are usually all in some um, space where we are surviving something. So what do you want them to know? Yeah, that's. Oh. It's a beautiful thing to imagine mm -hmm. a group of women surviving. Um, there's there's um, uh, Rainier Rilke wrote a book called The Book of Hours, and it's a bunch of poems. Rainier Rilke is a German poet, I believe German. I hope that's correct. Mm -hmm. um, and there's one in particular that I've gone back to over and over, and I can't recite the entire poem, but the little phrase that I've gone back to over and over in my life is, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Um, no feeling is final, just keep going. Mm. And, and that's what, if anything, if I've you know learned anything through suffering different things time and again and again and then those moments where it's like really we're doing this again you know it's like let it happen to you there are so many things in life that we cannot control mm -hmm. but no feelings final just keep going um, I also really feel that it's important to be surrounded with a tribe of people mm -hmm. that can just sit and listen to you and allow you the space to be yourself and can mirror back to you what they see. Mm -hmm. I don't think we do this alone. Mm -hmm. I think we need those people. And um, if you have those people in your life, then I think it's important to push yourself a little bit to move through these things rather than avoid them. Yeah. Because if you don't move through them, they will come back one in one form or another. But if you can, with the help of your tribe and the people who love you and that you trust, if you can move through these things, then, again, no feelings final. On the other side is joy mm -hmm. and gratitude mm -hmm. and things that sometimes people who haven't experienced the terror really don't understand yeah but it's a lot of beauty on the other side that is the truth yeah yeah can't top that thank you for your <laughs> courage and 
and your willingness to share um, to share your truth with people. I'm very grateful. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Yeah. All right, friends, that's all for our time with Laura. That line, you guys, it has stayed with me ever since she and I sat down. Beauty from terror, no feeling is final, just keep going. You know, I think sometimes it's hard for us to imagine how we might be able to relate to people who have suffered something that we're not familiar with. But I am telling you, when when she shared that wisdom with me, It resonated in my bones. I haven't survived the exact things that Laura has survived, but I have survived. And those words were so true. Beauty from terror, no feeling is final. Just keep going. That truth is true regardless of what you're surviving. You don't need to have the details of Laura's story to learn from Laura's healing. This is exactly what I had in mind when I thought about the season of Survivors. I knew that our collective wisdom would absolutely be capable of healing us. And we're just getting started. We want to be sure that you don't miss a moment. So stop what you're doing right now and subscribe on iTunes or on SoundCloud. While you're there, leave us a review so that other people can find us and join this chorus of courage to help us create a world where women belong with substance and with strength. If you want to know more about the beautiful project, I'll link to our website in the show notes, where I'll also include some resources for women who've survived sexual assault and chronic pain and breast cancer, the things that are true about Laura's story, and maybe there are things that are true about yours. Be sure you come back and join us in two weeks when we launch episode two with Maggie. Maggie is a super smart, super talented woman who um, survived sexual assault And then she also lived to tell about it and went on to survive the loss of a lifelong dream. Maggie's story really illustrates what it means to lose a sense of hope and purpose. But she's also right in the middle of healing. And as a part of her healing, she talks about the importance of rest, of learning that we're just enough, just the way that we are. It is wisdom that you do not want to miss. So until then, keep taking up space and using your voice. Thanks for joining me today, beauties. I'll see you soon.